This morning's message is uh, called Beautiful Warriors. I've taken it from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, which says this. This is King James. Thou, therefore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. How many go, yay, love that scripture. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> when I hear this scripture, endure hardness as a good soldier, I want to start whining right away. <laughs> it reminds me of, of when my children were small and we had devotions at dinner time. It was called table talk. And I would say, okay, it's time for table talk. They all start melting into, you know, off their chair. And <laughs> all this whining sound came out. That's how I feel when I hear this scripture. No, I don't like hardness. I, I don't want to. <laughs> and then the good soldier part. Sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> and I'm thinking, really, Lord? But if you look up the word good soldier, it's actually two words. The word good is literally beautiful. I'm starting to like this a little better now. <laughs> and the word soldier is a warrior. So he says we, we need to endure hardness as beautiful warriors. So this morning we're going to take a, a look at this verse a little closer. And I want to answer some questions regarding this verse. Questions like, what is the hardness he's talking about? Where does the hardness come from? Is hardness God's will for our life? Oh, I just want to start whining again. <laughs> no, I don't want hardness. <laughs> is hardness optional? Is there a box I can check that says, no thank you? <laughs> and if it's not optional, how do we endure hardness as a good soldier? or beautiful warrior of Jesus Christ? Well, to answer these questions, I have to kind of give you the backstory to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. He wrote it from his second imprisonment in Rome. Now, Paul's first imprisonment wasn't a bad deal. He couldn't leave. He had a rented house. He could have all the visitors he wanted. He proclaimed the gospel. It was... Like God set up a ministry organization for him, said, here, right there, I'll bring everybody to you. It wasn't a bad deal. The second time around, not so good. The second time around, he was placed in a dungeon. And the dungeons in Rome were not fun places. They weren't like today's jails and prisons. There was no light. There was no heat. There was no food, unless somebody brought it to you. It was not a nice place. And they had tiers of cells and Whoever did their business on the top, <laughs> their business came down the chute, so to speak. Not a nice place. That's where Paul was at when he wrote this letter. In order to understand this letter, you have to understand the relationship between Timothy and Paul. Timothy was one of Paul's converts. On one of his missionary, probably his first missionary journey, he was converted under the ministry of Paul. And somewhere along the line, the Apostle Paul said, you know, there's something about you. <laughs> How about you come with me on my missionary journey? So he was on the next two missionary journeys. And those took years. Those weren't a week. <laughs> those were years in traveling and uh, going from city to city, finding hardship upon hardship. And as is true today, when you minister with somebody and you live with somebody, 
and you work together with people. God knits your hearts together. And that's what he did with the Apostle Paul and Timothy. Timothy was really his protege. When the Apostle Paul was imprisoned the second time, Timothy, in fact, every time that Paul was imprisoned, <laughs> Timothy was always Paul's personal representative. When he wanted to send a letter to a church, Timothy was the one who went. Timothy was always the one trying to straighten out all the horrible doctrines that, that kept infiltrating the early church. So they had this very dear, very dear relationship. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 22, it says this, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. You find that this relationship has gone way past merely friends to, to being family, which is just how God works with, with, with us. He just connects us with each other and we become family. So the Apostle Paul dearly loved Timothy and he was all of this time preparing him because the Apostle Paul knew his end. The Apostle Paul knew he would stand before a Caesar and he probably wouldn't escape execution. So he knew he had to bring Timothy up alongside of him and teach him the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace and nothing less and nothing more than the gospel of grace. Even in, in the, the first chapter of Timothy, he, he tells Timothy more of his hardships. He says, everyone has left me. This was after the, the fire that took place in Rome, and Nero was not a nice guy. He blamed the Christians. And so there was persecution from everywhere, from the government, from your neighbor. <laughs> it was not fun. Of course, that's when we know about all the Christians being eaten by lions. That's when that time frame was. So in the first part of Second Timothy, he, he's telling him all the bad things that have happened, that everyone has left him. In those times, if people didn't bring you food, you didn't eat. The only one who stayed to minister to him and to minister to his name was the physician Luke. And he mentions that. And then he goes on and he says, oh, but there is one more. This, this uh, young guy, his name is Onesiphorus. I'm guessing that's how you say it. <laughs> and he boasts. He has come so often. He has come so and refreshed me. You know, praise God that the Lord will be merciful to him and, and show mercy to his life. And then he starts in chapter 2, where he's telling Timothy, come visit me. Come visit me. This is amazing. He knows he's not long for this world. He tells him that in this letter. My time is short. I have fought the good fight of faith. I have finished my course. He knows death is right around the corner. And what he wants more than anything else is for Timothy to come and see him. He wants to embrace the son in his face one more time and to impart to him something as well. You see, there's something about being a friend. So often, as people get older, they say, oh, I'm too old to work in ministry. I'm too old to that. Or young people, I'm too young. I'm too unqualified. I don't have a ministry. Wrong. If you can't find anything else to do, be a friend to somebody. Being a friend is a real ministry. <laughs> I can't tell you the friendships I have today that started 30 years ago. And when we see each other, it's like no time has passed at all. Because God has knit us together. Being a friend is a ministry. The friend I'm talking about, probably 25 to 28 years ago, I was in a little holiness church and I was the adult Sunday school teacher. Her and her husband started visiting Sunday school and church and they decided to stay. And one day she came to me and she says, 
God has told me I'm supposed to be your friend. And I'd be, okay. <laughs> I don't know if this is good or not. <laughs> and my friend has a, a lion personality. She's, she is she's bold. Um, she's a no-nonsense kind of gal. She has run her own business. She, she's assertive. She's not shy. But she, her lionness often hides her heart. See, on the outside, she can growl. But on the inside, she is pure marshmallow. <laughs> she is pure marshmallow. And she became my friend. The Lord knows how to meet your need. And sometimes he does that to a friend. Because sometimes your need is someone to stand alongside you so that you're simply not alone. Sometimes it's just having someone to sit with at church. Being a friend can be really simple. But it's a true ministry of the Holy Spirit. So this is the kind of relationship that Paul and Timothy had. Now I think he also wanted to encourage Timothy. And you say, how would that encourage Timothy to go see his dear, dear friend and his father in the faith in probably the worst circumstances he'd ever seen him in? How would that be encouraging? Well, it actually could be. Because you see, one of the things Paul was always imparting to Timothy is, if I can do this, you can do it. If I can keep the course, you can keep the course. If I can proclaim the gospel in the midst of horrific persecution, you can preach the gospel in the midst of even minor persecution. We don't have it that bad. (laughs) We don't have it bad here in America. Thank you, Jesus. We can simply be nice to people in the name of Jesus and just let them know, you know, Jesus does love you. He does care. We can be somebody's friend, even if they don't want to be our friend in return. You see, agape love isn't concerned with whether or not you're my friend. Agape love says, you just let me love you. If you just let me love you, let me be Jesus with skin on to you, then God has a way of multiplying that love back to us. The kinds of persecution that Timothy and Paul had to face was not only governmental, because the government in those days had government-ordained worship services, worshiping the Roman gods. And so if you did not comply to the worship services, <laughs> you were targeted as a traitor. So they really didn't care too much about Christians, except that see, the pagans were really superstitious. They figured if we're all supposed to worship these gods for the blessing, and you're not doing your part, well, if something bad happens, Yes, he's faulted it. You want who didn't do his part. <laughs> so Christians were persecuted from everywhere. Not only did they have that kind of persecution, but in the church itself. There were Judaizers who wanted to say, yeah, Jesus is Messiah, but you've got to follow the law. You're not saved unless you've you got Jesus and circumcision, and Jesus and Sabbath keeping, and Jesus and whatever. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is faith in Christ alone. Then they had the Gnostics, who were a very weird bunch. (laughs) These were the people who were in the church. (laughs) These are people in church trying to tell born-again believers that you have to add something else to Jesus. 
the Gnostics wanted to say, okay, well, you can add Jesus as a Messiah, but he's not truly God. And if you need Jesus, and then you need some special revelation, and you need special experiences. And as you get all these experiences, then you work your way up into heaven. They were always trying to add something else to Jesus. That's not the gospel. The gospel is in Christ alone. Amen? So we think, well, is that really a big deal? Is it really a big deal if believers believe, well, you have to have Jesus and circumcision, and Sabbath-keeping, and law-keeping, and festival-keeping? How many of you lived your life like that? Lots of us did. Did we like it? No, because there's no freedom in it. We're placing our faith in ourselves when we say it's Jesus plus anything else. And that's not the gospel. The gospel sets us free so that we're not a slave to anything or anybody. It's Jesus and it's Jesus alone. One of the things I think Paul wanted Timothy to see is when things get hard, you don't have to quit. You can overcome in every situation. Don't let circumstances make your decisions for you. Keep on keeping on. Keep on being strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. The very first verse of chapter 2 is, Be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. That's your key to enduring hardness. It's the grace of Jesus Christ. So what is this hardness? In particular, for the Apostle Paul and for Timothy, it was all of this persecution trying to keep the doctrine, the pure doctrine of Jesus Christ alone, pure and untainted, so that the true gospel that sets people free is, and is the power of salvation could be preached to us without it being watered down and changed into something that it isn't. But it was also life. How many of you know life happens? Life happened to Lola this morning. Her transmission fell out of her vehicle, <laughs> or it went out. <laughs> I mean, that's life. Stuff happens, right? Well, the Apostle Paul had that too. I'm going to read Second Corinthians in chapter 11. Paul has a list of life that happened to him. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Okay, I would have quit right then. Just one time. Okay, you're going to strip all the flesh off my back. Okay, Jesus, I love you, but I am done. <laughs> These are going to have to do, you know, find someone else to, to tell them the truth. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and some scholars believe he was actually stoned to death and raised to life. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day adrift in the sea. On frequent journeys. How many of you know? They didn't travel in style. They were walking everywhere they went. Frequent journeying, danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then he says the funniest thing. And apart from other things, there's other things. <laughs> that wasn't enough. There's other things. He says there's other things. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He loved the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he loved the believers. And he wanted them to have the truth that he had. And he was not satisfied that anybody not know the truth. 
That is Jesus, and it is Jesus alone. It is his grace and his grace alone. So there was physical hardness of persecution. There was physical hardness of day-to-day life. And then there was the emotional hardness of worry and concern for the gospel. And Jesus was the answer to all of it. Jesus was the answer to all of it. Hard times and hard things don't come from God. That's why most Christians don't like this verse. Endure hardness as a good soldier. No. (laughs) No, I don't want to. (laughs) Jesus is the answer. God doesn't bring hard things, but he knows this is what life is like. Life happens. It doesn't come from God. So then where does it come from? It comes from our own decisions. Have you ever done something you wish you hadn't done? Made a decision you wished you had went the other way. Sometimes life is hard because we're stupid. It's just true. Sometimes we make bad decisions. <laughs> okay? Life is hard because we made it hard. And then there's those other people. <laughs> those other people who make bad decisions. <laughs> they make our life hard sometimes too. And then, of course, there's always the adversary. He's behind a whole lot of the hardness that comes into our lives. Because he wants us to get off of the truth that Jesus Christ alone is enough and he is sufficient and he is the answer. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come unto me, this is Jesus speaking, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your soul. Why? Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love that. But when I look at what the Apostle Paul went through, yeah, light, easy? Uh, Well, I don't know about that, Lord. (laughs) Five times beaten? Three times beaten with rods? Stoned to death? Light? Easy? Really? (laughs) Yes. Really. Is hardness optional? Is there a box we can check and say, nope, I can go around the hard things in life. I have Jesus. There are some people who like to preach that. If you receive Jesus, everything is wonderful. It is. In your spirit. Life still happens. John 16, says, These things I have spoken to you, this is Jesus, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation." He says, sorry, it's going to be there. But be of good cheer. Why? I have overcome the world. So, if it's not optional that we endure hardness, how do we endure hardness as a good soldier or a beautiful warrior? The answer is chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. How do we overcome How do we go through? How do we endure when things are not easy? By his grace. He said, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. How do we do that? 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, and this is a, a conversation the Apostle Paul was having with God. The Apostle Paul had been uh, taken up into the third heaven and received divine revelations that he wasn't allowed to tell anybody about. And he says, there was given me a messenger from Satan, a thorn in my flesh. It was 
not God's handiwork to give the Apostle Paul a messenger of Satan. Satan is not the teacher of the church. The Holy Spirit is the teacher of the church. Some translations, when you read this, he says, a thorn in the flesh was given me to keep me from becoming conceited. But that's not what that verse means. He says that I might not be exalted above measure. Well, who doesn't want him exalted? Satan, the, the guy who's coming to try to stop it. Why? Because he is, he is exalted in all of the land when pe- more and more people will come to Jesus Christ. And that's what he doesn't want. Satan was trying to stop the gospel of grace. It was not God saying, oh, I will keep you humble. No. God does not need Satan to make you humble. He just has to open your eyes. <laughs> and that is easy for him to do. So he is having this conversation because he's he sought the Lord three times to make this thing go away. Who do you think was behind all these beatings? Satan. Who was behind being stoned? Satan. He had sent messengers of his own to stir up trouble for the apostle to try to get him to quit. He doesn't want the gospel, the true gospel of who Jesus Christ is to us, to get out. Because we have the power of Jesus Christ to change this whole world by the message of the gospel of grace. So he asked God, I've asked you three times, why is this thing not gone? He said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I like the way it's translated in the ISV, which is the International Standard Version. It says this, But he told me, my grace is all you need. That's what my grace is sufficient means. My grace is all you need. And then he says, my strength? Well, where does that strength come from? My grace. His grace is our strength. He says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. The word strength there is miraculous power. How can you be stoned to death and raised from the dead? Miraculous power. How can you be beaten, not once, but five times with 39 lashes, and still live to have anything for them to beat off of you? (laughs) The grace of God, the miraculous power of Jesus Christ within us. He says it's that kind of power that's made perfect. And the word perfect means complete, to finish, to have no deficiency in our weakness. Therefore, he says, I will most gladly, therefore, glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I'll just tell you how I see it. You see, when I have a weakness, it's like a deficit. So, this is my deficit. So, this is a little cup. <laughs> this is me, and I have a little deficit in my life. I'm not strong in some particular area. And there's a hole. I don't have strength. God says, His grace comes and fills up my deficit, so that I know I'm no longer He fills in those deficits in me with his own miraculous power so that I lack nothing that I have need of. If we think or believe that we are strong enough in a certain area of our life, we will do what we are strong enough to do. And we won't rely on Christ. Why does God use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise? Why does God pick me to minister the word? A foolish thing, an unqualified thing, a giggly thing. (laughs) Why would he choose me? 
because it's his power in me. I just have to be willing. I can come say, I'm a deficit. <laughs> in my own strength, I am a deficit. But in Christ, I can do all things. Why? Because his grace is at work in me. It's strengthening me. It's taking up my deficits. I'm, I don't lack anything when I'm in him. His grace is sufficient to accomplish whatever he has called me to do or to be. James 4, 6 says, but he giveth more grace. Oh, you mean there's more? Yes, because there's more life. <laughs> we need more grace because there's more life. It is true what Jesus says. I can do nothing apart from him. I can accomplish nothing apart from him. Everything I have is by grace. Everything I am is by grace. It's all a gift. I don't come up with anything good on my own. It's all Jesus. So, in James 4, 7, it says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Back up. He giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. This is the key. Every once in a while, when I see Jesus do something awesome, let me take that back. I always see Jesus do awesome things. <laughs> when I listen to myself preach, I'm like, Jesus, you are good. Because I didn't think of half of that. Jesus is good. So every once in a while, my flesh goes, thank you very much. <laughs> and I go, ick, ooh, stop that. You didn't do that. It's just my flesh trying to take credit. But I despise it. I despise my flesh when it does that because I know the truth that without him I am nothing. And all glory, all glory belongs to him. So when that flesh starts to get icky on me, it's like, Lord told me years ago, I said, ugh, it's icky, God. How do I kill it? He says, the key is right there. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What is it to be humble? To make yourself nothing? You don't have to do that. You already are. <laughs> Apart from Christ, okay? <laughs> the key is, somebody who's humble is not afraid to ask. Especially when they know to whom they're asking. So, God, I need your grace to overcome this. Just like that. Just like that. Whenever he starts to needle my flesh... Lord, I need your grace. I'm humbling myself. I need your grace. Whatever we face, whatever we need to overcome, whether it's our flesh or it's a hard thing in our life, I need your grace. When I looked up the word resist, because it says God resisteth the proud, I was like, God, how is it that you resist the proud? What does that mean, you resist the proud? Because in my mind, it was always like God going, yep, you're proud. <laughs> Can't help you. <laughs> That's not what it means. I looked it up in the um, 1828 Webster's Dictionary, the word resist. It says this. To resist is to be like a dam or a mound that resists the current of water passively by standing unmoved and uninterrupted in its progress. Our Father's love is unaffected by our pride. He stands unmovable from his love for us. If we're proud, we can't receive his loving kindness. But it doesn't stop him. Another definition of resistance is to endeavor to counteract. 
our Father is always endeavoring to counteract whatever Satan is bringing into our life, whether it's our flesh or something difficult that we face. If we submit to the truth that without Him we can do nothing, then we don't have to do anything without His grace empowering us in His strength. Grace is God's absolutely free loving kindness, His unmerited favor, but it's also His divine empowerment. It goes on in chapter 2 of Timothy. Therefore endure hardness as a good soldier. He told them how to do that. Be strong in the grace. Be strong in the grace. He goes on and he says, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life so that he may please the one who enlisted him. What does that mean? A warrior, a soldier, is well trained. Well trained. If you're going to be strong in the grace, you've got to be trained in grace. You've got to sit under grace. You've got to hear grace. You've got to memorize grace. You've got to be prepared for when the hard things come. But you're standing in His grace. You're equipped with His grace. And you will become by His grace. He gives us His divine enablement to do all things that He calls us to do. It also means don't get distracted. You know, sometimes when you read it, you're like, does that mean I can't have a life? <laughs> no, doesn't mean that. It means don't let life distract you. Don't let the things that happen pull you off of the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what He has accomplished through His death, burial, and resurrection. He has made us more than conquerors, and by His grace, we can live that out. We truly can stand in His grace as a beautiful warrior, dressed in the garments of righteousness, crowned with grace and glory, His grace and His glory. So whatever we face, we know we've already overcome. How did the Apostle Paul endure all that hardness? By grace. He clothed himself in grace and righteousness. And he knew who he was and whose he was. That nothing, nothing can separate him from the love of his Father or the power that his Father has provided for him. In 2 Corinthians 9, 8, it says this, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Whatever that good work is. He's not talking about ministry. He's talking about life. <laughs> Life. You, we have grace for life. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified, declared not guilty, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We stand in grace, and we receive more grace. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in our time of need. If we're in a time of need, we have to remember 2 Corinthians 12.9, My grace is all you need, because everything you need is in my grace, my absolutely free loving kindness. My divine enablement to do what you cannot do on your own. That's what grace is. Grace is the ability to do what you can't. 
What in your life have you been saying, I can't? What in your life have you been saying, I won't? Huh. There's a great for that too. <laughs> this morning, we are going to receive communion. You see, it says, be strong in the grace, and grace is apprehended by faith. And one of the best ways to activate your faith is to act on your faith. And so that's what communion is. It is a way for us to activate what we believe. We believe we receive when we pray. We believe we receive when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ's body and blood, that we receive the grace we need for whatever we're going through. That we are more than conquerors. We will proclaim the true gospel of Jesus Christ, nothing less. That we are saved by grace through faith, the true gospel of Jesus Christ.